Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 50th episode of Encrypted. Yes, you heard that right, 50th episode. It's an amazing milestone for us to reach this number. And the second update that we have for you guys is that we were recently ranked as one of the top shows on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, alongside Joe Rogan. Isn't that absolutely awesome? Like super thrilled, super pumped to hear this. And I really want to thank our community, our listeners for supporting us so much. And for those tuning in, Encrypted is one of the Middle East's first and largest podcasts dedicated to blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies. And now on to the episode. So today is the 50th episode and you know those keyboard warriors and WhatsApp groups who just love to debate? Or wouldn't it be better for them to debate over chai and maybe record it as a podcast? Chai's tea, for those who don't know. While to celebrate our 50th episode, we brought in the guys from a fintech group that I personally run who love debating the economy and how it affects central banks, crypto assets and the future of finance. And trust me, this episode has so much interesting knowledge on the economy and on the intersection between traditional economics, monetary policy and of course crypto assets as well. Before we start, I really want to give a shout out to two of our sponsors. Yes, we have two sponsors now. CBX, which is a multinational exchange with clients in over 50 countries. Not only does it have a delightful experience, but it's always a benefit to personally the founders of CBX who have quite an experienced background in financial markets. And so I place a great faith in their operations and security of this exchange. What's more, CBX regularly has new project listings and many promotions. And just by having an account, you'll be entered into the airdrop program on a weekly basis. So I invite you all to check them out at cbx.one to trade your cryptocurrencies. We'd like to introduce you to our second sponsor, Gibral, which is a leading blockchain technology company bringing traditional assets to the digital world. By tokenizing currencies, digital assets and other financial instruments on the Ethereum blockchain, Gibral is developing a global open financial system where trust and regulations are digitally enforceable. Again, I'd like to thank those who've been supporting the show. Remember, you can support us in any way possible. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the show and sharing the podcast on your social media and any other way you feel like supporting. We really hope you enjoy our 50th episode. Welcome to the 50th episode of Encrypted. We have a special edition today with four guests. Our co-host, Ahmed Abalagi, is on the, the podcast with us today as well. We have Siddiq. He's with us today. We have Amin and we have Matt, all with different backgrounds. I will give them a chance to do their introduction in a second. But first, Ahmed, say hello. Hello, Nick. Thank you so much for incorrectly addressing me. <laughs> Matt, give us an introduction. Yeah, my name is Matt Hamilton. I'm managing director of Loyal Mina. We're a loyalty technology company leveraging distributed ledger technology. I also do advisor work through a company called M3 Capital. And Amin? It's good to be back. I think it was the second episode that I was with you guys. Yeah, you were with us in the second episode. Welcome. Thank you for coming back. Great. We're, to we're 50 and going. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's great to be here for that and following you guys. Absolutely brilliant. I'm a software engineer who got into AI and then spent 20 years managing money in the equity markets. A couple of years ago, I just decided to focus on fintech and I've still been trying to figure out what's going on. So I'm here with a few more questions. We have three moderators. And uh, Siddiq. Yes, I'm Sadiq. I'm the founder and CEO of SmartCrowd, a digital real estate investment platform that fractionalizes real estate and makes real estate accessible to the masses. My background in corporate finance, trade chart accountant and a CFA charter holder. Thanks for having me here. Great. Thank you. All right, guys. So 
Very different type of episode. We have, I think, one of the biggest groupings of people in one podcast for us this time. It's a 50th episode, so we thought we'd spin up a little bit of a different angle. We are going to talk about economics, and we're going to try and tie it into cryptocurrency. We're going to tie it into anything and everything that has a relation to fintech, crypto, fiat, MNT, anything we can think of, we're going to talk about. So we're going to first start off with a simple question, crypto or fiat? So who wants to make a choice? Anybody interested in uh, making a gamble or making a bet on what's going to be the winner? How about crypto fiat? That's something that's Okay, happening. let's go that way then. We can start there. Neither. Go with gold. Are we going to go? Oh, okay. Matt? I guess my argument with that would be that crypto is one version of distributed ledger technology-enabled currency. So I think we'll have advancements on that. The same technology, but used for actually leveraging monetary policy rather than avoiding it. Okay. So look, if we're talking about currencies as a whole, does anybody have an opinion on sort of the winning, the winning structure? So you have US dollar, you have Chinese yen, you have all the other currencies out there. The cryptocurrencies, we have Bitcoin, we have Ethereum, we have up-and-coming crypto from Binance with BNB, we have Ton coming online next month, supposedly. So anybody have any opinions on what that might look like? Are we going to literally see a fiat currency in top place, then second place, another fiat currency, and then it's going to start looking like crypto? One of the things we're definitely going to see is people having more of a choice. And if you think back, and I safely say I'm the oldest person here, we were used to getting the phone from the government. The government had an airline. And as we grew up, you guys would be familiar. You had a choice, five, six mobile operators. You could have two SIM cards. You could switch things around. Definitely brought advantages, but it also brought a lot more confusion. Are you on the right tariff? So if nothing else, it's just reinforced the importance of the topic we're discussing. Because no longer would it be, how do I apply my personal finances? What's my base currency? It's going to be, what are my base currencies? So it's a good question is all I'm trying to say, but I haven't answered it, I'm afraid. But, but what about, so government's power is essentially their money, right? Their currency. So I, I guess they could forego telecom operations and airlines, but they can't forego, you know, what, what gives them power. Unless that's military that gives them power, really. I'm not a historian, but if you go back in history, almost every fiat currency has failed at some point in time. What makes us feel like our current fiat system won't burn and crash? The currencies that you mentioned, yes, those are global powerhouses like the US, China, and so forth. But there's a lot of countries that have their fiats that have been worthless, Zimbabwe, Argentina, and so forth, because they were mismanaged. The central banks made a bunch of horrendous decisions at some point in time that caused that. I, could ar I would argue that some of the Western world the powerhouses are probably on that track, potentially. So I would agree with Matt's point where I think the innovation around digital currencies, crypto, I think the technology will probably enable some level of, I'm not really sure what the answer is, but it will enable for us to have a better system to make it less manipulative where there is clear valuation or distinction of how these things are evaluated and controlled and managed because there's a lot of speculation built into what we're doing and the fractionalization banking and so forth has caused a lot of havoc and has distorted a lot of value and has created a lot of inequality throughout the world and it's only getting worse mm. yeah i think i think on top of that too it's, it's i think they're all going to still be here i don't think there's any any of those going away i think the real question is what is going to be the reserve currency so 
what are we going to see being used for settlement of trade and what are we going to see being kept for sovereign reserves, essentially? That's the big question to me. It's obviously the US dollar right now. It has the liquidity, it has the power. There's no real substitute in my mind. I don't know if you guys disagree with me on the sense of sovereign holdings, but settlement, you're starting to see China, Russia, others come to the table with new solutions right now. And last week, Mark Carney's statement, I think, opened the door for central banks to be looking at new uses of distributed ledger technology for that. If we're talking about the central banks and the leveraging of, let's say, native fiat currencies and not basketed currencies like the UAE, dirham, and stuff like this, anybody know what the, the least leveraged currency is globally in fiat? In terms of the banking system assets relative to what yeah, the central so bank the, is providing. Yeah, the actual value that's being positioned for that currency. Not against other currencies, but in terms of its, its genuine value. Does anybody know? I don't, but actually it's an interesting question because was it not the case that in the financial crisis it was quite hard to get your hand on what the dollar level was because of all the shadow banking? Yeah. So that would be quite a hard figure to get in, in any case. Probably the easiest places to get a figure like that would be Say an economy like the UAE, powerful mm. central bank, and the banking system here. As far as I know, it's not easy to get UAE deposits elsewhere. So, but no, I, I don't know the exact answer. Does anybody else? No. I think it feeds into another question because we're going to start talking about crypto and we've got Libra to talk about and some of these asset backed cryptocurrencies. But, but uh, let me ask you a question Does the leverage actually matter or the total money supply in the system, or maybe both? That's the question I have. So, essentially, central banks factor in the multiplier effect when they're controlling the money yeah. supply. And the fact is, because it goes through the banks, it might be a little bit harder to control, but it's part of policy. Now, it might not be easy to manage mm -hmm. it. My understanding is since the 70s, the policy has been we try to control, and it's which tools do we use to control the money supply and let yeah. everything else take care of itself. And then everything else stems from that. So it's built in. A lot of questioning and objection is coming along now as to, A, is that the only way to allocate credit. So we leave it all to the banking system. And obviously, people are saying, well, if you assume this is all going to be efficient, we've seen since 08 that it wasn't. What's the answer? And the other one is essentially, what's the price to be paid for giving all that to private institutions? So again, I haven't answered your question, but I'm not sure if it's entirely that level of leverage mm. or the total amount of money available in the system matching up more or less with its uses in transactions or whatever else to stay stable and functioning. And when currencies fail, as Sadiq was saying, it's often been because either too much of it was produced or, and again, I defer to others here, one of the concerns about a fixed supply like in the gold standard is there were times when there was insufficient supply and you created crises because you didn't have enough. Mm -hmm. So perhaps the flexibility is, is, a, is a kind of an in-between is what people are looking for having sufficient supply to facilitate all the transactions, whatever people want to do, not so much as to cause inflation and not so little as to create an economic crisis out of nothing. Yeah. But I think it's a follow-on from your question, where maybe we don't want to know which one's the most leveraged, but where has the policy been more or less right mm. to allow for smooth functioning? Just on that last point there, I mean, just logically, just logically thinking through that, right? You know, I have a very limited understanding of the crypto space, right? But my understanding is Bitcoin has limited supply as well too, right? So I think it's not so much a matter of limited supply. I think it will be the ratio that will be adjusted and calculated, right? But by having that limited supply, you always have a point of reference to fall back on. It's like what is there in the system in the first place, right? Whereas right now, we cannot answer what Nick just asked because of 
the whole fractionalization and so forth. And you just don't know how much there is. This is one of the pushbacks you're going to get from central government. So they're going to say that's a problem with Bitcoin is you cannot control the money supply. So we're seeing this actually, a lot of the cryptocurrencies, the whole purpose of them is to reduce the bank's abilities, the central bank's abilities to in inflict monetary policy. What you're seeing happening now with these lenders, even Binance recently, they're actually fractionalizing Bitcoin because they're allowing you to lend it and then they're lending it at different rates. So it's going against what was actually set up to do. But I think I don't believe Bitcoin has a place for that use case being used as an actual global currency, more as a store of wealth. That's my own personal beliefs. But I think the main reason is just what you said. I think that it doesn't have the ability to create money out of lending and it doesn't have the ability to control its money supply. Have you guys seen these, this decentralized finance space and what they, they, so they've been trying to sort of creating on-chain lending platforms where you put up a collateralized sort of debt position using Ethereum or using Bitcoin and then you'd get a stable coin for that. And then when you want to close off that position, you essentially just pay it off and then pay the interest on top. These things are actually getting built as we speak. They're all experiments. And also you're having Tezos, which has all on-chain governance. So if you were to actually make a token or create a cryptocurrency, there is effective governance tools to allow you to play with some things and actually sort of edit things that were already made right in the future. So I feel that at least in the crypto world, it, it seems like people are trying to implement changes where or implement sort of methods where people are allowed to edit things through on-chain governance. But yeah, it's it's similar to how I'd say the current current central bank sort of works because people at the end of the day have to have a say and they, they need to change things, no? Might be actually interesting to start rather than coming up with answers to these questions, focusing on, on some questions that will be interesting to address. There seems to be a lot of two debates going on. You mentioned something earlier, Sadiq, which I mentioned even when we talked in, in the second episode. What's interesting about the crypto space is the technology allows certain things information to be gathered, money to behave differently. I mean, you can put an expiry date on it. I think it was Larry Summers at some point during the crisis suggested if we can give people dollars that expire with time, they'll spend them. Technology allows you to do that. Whereas when you had a piece of gold, you had it and that was it, or even a banknote, right? So the technology allows us to do various things. And what you mentioned seemed, and I, I was going to ask you, what is the essence of what some of these innovations you've mentioned allow you to do that you can't do now or can do better? That's a very important question. There's a totally separate question, which everybody's still debating. There's probably have been for centuries and will continue to debate. What is the ideal money or what are the ideal different forms of money? What's the ideal global surf currency? What's an ideal one for a particular market and so on? And, and we might never come to an answer, but what I hope and believe is that some of the technologies that are coming up distributed ledger technology, smart contracts, and so on, um, smart money could actually mean money that shrinks and expands to accommodate. Could be. I don't know. It wasn't possible before. But there are fundamental questions about money in any form in terms of what would make it suitable for what purpose. But I think we should be talking about monies. I don't think there's going to be a single one. And I think even if we just refine the questions, actually it'll be interesting so that we can focus our inquiries in terms of what we look at. I agree completely. That's what we should be focused on here. And what's really interesting is your comment from earlier about the tools the central banks work with today, the monetary policy tools, they're, they're fairly archaic. archaic and the downstream results of those tools, they can't be controlled. If we look away from cryptocurrencies and we focus on what does a programmable currency and a distributed ledger look like for domestic policy and for global reserves, 
that gets interesting. Think about when you said a currency that expires. Think about a currency that doesn't expire, but that the government buys T-bills up with money that is, has to be used for specific loans by the yeah. private banks. After three years, four years, it goes back to being normal money. This means they can control and have transparency and remove variance risk too. They're going to be able to see where money's going, how it's being used in real time, rather than having to make predictions, estimates, and then coming back later to see where it actually at all lands. This is interesting because now it gets onto the conversation of when you're trying to get in and out of recession, you control the money supply, you print bills, you remove bills from the market. The focus of the bill being the bills or the money being printed, specifically going to a use case. And in the US, everybody's talking about lower options for jobs in the future, et cetera, and economies which are funded by the government, that money will definitely indirectly go to the people in the market. So the, the unemployed, et cetera. So that's, that's an interesting part because they have full control over it. Do we think the central banks can actually get their brains together to be able to do that? Because that's, that's, I mean, that's complex, being able to not just control how much you print and direct it, because they obviously they're printing the money and just buying assets and then it goes for the banking system and eventually it might percolate down to the individual but in this case it's you issue it and nobody can touch it unless you are one of those individuals that's supposed to receive it and then they get to spend it wherever they want but people can always find ways around things like that so i mean that that came up with the original one of the original questions we asked so so let, let's take another example let's play with what's possible a couple of years ago when i was doing one of these fintech courses on one of the chat groups I posed the question just purely because I, I didn't think what it would mean. I was just thinking, well, what if governments replaced... So I, it was, the question was, how about fiat crypto, which is something I opened up with. Okay. What if governments replaced notes and coins with something like peer-to-peer, similar to Bitcoin? They could control the supply and demand, but then they eventually ban notes and coins. And let's say they go ahead and ensure it's anonymous and people trust that. There are benefits to that. Okay, there are benefits to that, but there are benefits that governments would also want to do. So they'd make sure every transaction is traceable. They could avoid what they outlaw as illegal activities. Tax collection can be automated and things like that. And I almost prefer to start thinking of use cases like that that take us from where we are incrementally towards somewhere which maybe we can't picture yet. It's almost like too big a question to ask. And that's yeah. one example to ask. So you're already talking about what China are doing now with the central bank digital currency. What's the detail of what they've announced that actually might be useful for the listeners to get a grip? That on? is, they, well, I, I wish they provided enough details <laughs> so that we could share. But what, from, what I've, from what they've actually put out is that all the big companies like Alipay, WeChat, because these guys actually all deal with billions worth of yuan, the Chinese currency, um, in form of balance through, through their wallets. And I think it will just be a simple process for them just to sort of do that technical switch. And they'll be giving, basically the end user wouldn't know that there's a central bank digital currency. Are they, are they storing where that money is going and the, the, the use of that transaction and what it's attached to? So if that basically that one, one has a audit history of every yeah. single transaction yeah. is involved. So they'll definitely be recording it. They'll definitely be recording it. But in terms of storage and the actual like the crypto side of things, they haven't really put, in, put much details about it. That. It makes perfect sense. It's, yeah. it's command and control. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I think the points you mentioned are accurate, though. They're, they're, they're not going as creative as what does programmable currency mean for downstream mapping. They're car, both Carney's statements and what the China is looking to do. I think they're looking at removing cash. Yeah. And this is yeah, huge. Yeah. Think about Europe. If Europe's running negative interest rates right now, the banks are covering most of that cost. What happens when they shift the cost to the consumer? 
I'll tell you what happens. They're going to put the cash in their safe. <laughs> if you make it digital, they can't do that. Absolutely. So Europe needs this. And this is, is as big as everybody thinks Carney's statements were. All he's thinking about is keeping people from pulling their money and putting it in safe. This is critical. Yeah, as so, creative as he's getting. So to, to double like confirm. So if this money was digital, then, and there were negative rates, then I'm paying to basically store these, store this money somewhere. It's a default. Everyone says that banks aren't, or countries aren't going to default. They already have. By paying negative interest rates, you're a soft default. Essentially, as long as you're paying negative interest rates, just in case for those who don't understand. A negative interest rate, which you've been seeing for some time now in uh, Japan and in Europe, is essentially where the lender is paying the borrower to hold their money. So right now, the banks are eating a lot of that cost. But what happens when they pass that cost on to the actual consumer? Well, you're literally, quite literally paying for the bank to hold your money. So what are you going to do if you're that person? You're going to pull the cash out and you're going to put in a safe in your house. So this is where digital currencies really, really help countries that are running negative interest rates. Which comes back to what we were saying. I mean, these developments obviously potentially can be positive, quote unquote, whichever way you see is positive. But they can also be used for other ends in the same way that social media was a way for everybody to exchange ideas. And it could also end up being used to profile people, manipulate their votes in elections or whatever else. So it, it's definitely... That really happens? <laughs> Allegedly, I don't know. <laughs> so my point is there is that it's actually so essentially that you've just highlighted it. It's, it's kind of a, an anti-mattress scheme, right? We don't want people to stuff exactly. their mattresses full of cash. And that's an option they have if they're holding gold or some other form of paper money. And I guess in the old days, what they do is replace that currency with something new and say, well, the old notes are no longer valid. You have to hand them in and then something else changes. But, but essentially, it goes back that the tech will enable certain things and the debate remains, what should money, what form should money take? And that, that whole issue, so at the time when we were debating, would governments allow the equivalent of, of a digital form of cash, as in notes and coins? And the concern was, well, that allows people to store as much as they want on their wallet. And if they do, they don't put it on deposit in the bank. And that upsets the whole system by which government gives reserves mm. to the banks, the banks then multiply that. And but they why do we need banks in the first well, place? That, that is a debate that's being, well, not necessarily why we need banks. And I, I've got two things to, to say about that. One is there is a movement, and I'm trying to remember the exact name, I put it on our FinTech Connector group at some point, where they, they're calling for the people to be able to hold government money as cash with the central bank. That doesn't avoid your concern about negative interest rates. The idea being everybody has access to narrow digital banking, and narrow banking, essentially. So no longer do I have to. So at the moment, the only choice I have if I want to pay you some money or source some money is to hold the liability from a bank. And once I have, you know, my employer pays me, I've moved my money to them, they can do anything they like on it on their liability side. They just owe me the money. Okay. Whereas some people are saying, well, we have just forced the banks into the intermediation cycle. And perhaps we're giving them free ride and we incentivize them by giving deposit guarantees and so on. There's so much part of the system of how we allocate money to, to move the credit in the system. And some people are saying, well, let's reform that a little bit. Let's just say I can just hold my money as if I'm holding it in cash. And if the bank wants it from me, they better pay me something commensurate with the risk they're going to take. And then I can be selective who I give it to. And that's an ongoing debate, which again is allowed by digital money. So, you know, th th that's another way of looking at it. But I, again, I agree with you. I think 
that's going to be a tough one for governments to swallow until they can figure out how to replace their existing system for credit allocation or something else. Well, initially, the banks were created as a security holder of your value. Then they started adding financial services based on the value you're holding. And then obviously the US started, well, and other currencies started to leverage that value that you were holding based on what the banks were holding, right? So if we go back to a world where it's all about what you're holding and then you can go to the central bank yourself and ask for value on top of that or you want to leverage it with them or is that a feasibility? Is that something that can be looked at? Rather than going to a, a commercial entity that is leveraging off what they're holding, which is what you, they, you've given to them. So, so one, one way under the, the system proposed is, okay, I now have my money as a reserve with a central bank. A bank, a commercial bank, is in the business of taking some of that money and deploying it. And they, could get, they can charge for that. They might lend at a certain rate. But then I will have some idea as to what their reputation is. Are they doing the right? It's almost like an investment. It becomes an investment when I give them a like deposit. Like dynamic which is what your money. Is. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And, and then they, if the good ones will turn up, or it could be a crowd pro- uh, funding platform, or it could be some other way of having that credit pushed out to the system. Which it does not have to be. Kind of already happens, right? With your big brands and so forth, where people feel comfortable, right? Anything bad, bank or something, you have capital flight, people just line up at ATMs and take their money out because they're f- afraid. But I want to I sort of build on Nick's question, because I was trying to go back to that, is like, you know, we live in a very complicated world, right? All these macro theories and so forth that your your central bankers and so forth when they were devised and so forth it was, it was a very different world it wasn't as connected as it is today so now a monetary policy or a fiscal policy of the u.s has implications throughout the world right maybe 50 60 70 years ago they didn't have that much of an impact globally as they have now you know the world has become more complicated you know if you go back centuries we live used to live in a very simplified world and it worked just fine. I would argue at some point, you know, certain technologies have caused more stress for people instead of trying to make things easier. Having said that, technology can enable a lot of things were not possible back in the old ways of doing things, you know. Let's go back to why money was created in the first place. Because the bartering system had limitations with the technology that was at that time. It was very difficult to put a value against different services. I would argue some form of digital distribution ledger can enable that, right? So we talk about where's that value being hold that you put you raise the question, you know, I would go back to tangible stuff, right? It could be a tangible asset like gold or hard assets like real estate or value of your services, what you bring to the table. That's pretty tangible, right? So you limit the risk of fractionalizing it and multiplying it. You know, greed has taken over all this stuff. People want more and more and more, and it will never end, all right? And we're clearly seeing that. So this is more of a philosophical discussion, just to throw it out there to see what you guys think of that. It comes back to the, the, the main question we're asking, the technology aside in terms of what it allows us to do, what is an ideal form of money or monies? And you know, what does it enable? What does it allow? Bitcoin. Well, okay, it's digital gold. It's one, or the other. one factor out yeah. there. It's interesting, we, we, before the podcast we were discussing, one of the things was uh, modern monetary theory. And, and there are a few interesting analyses that they go in terms of the history of money. And they, they disagree with the Austrians as to how it came along, but they both argue there was never much barter at any point because it isn't very practical. But one of the stories they relate is it's going back, I think, to Babylonian times. But there, what, what it brings in, further to your point, is that there was still the need for that central authority to intermediate. So the idea is you'd store your grain or, or whatever you did, and there was an exchange rate. 
And that's why they would have a unit. That's why it was a pound of silver or a, a pound. In, in, it was called, a, I don't remember what it was called, in, in, but I think it was a unit of grain. And then they put pricing there. So one unit of grain is equivalent of 20 of them are equivalent to a chicken and how many are equivalent and so on. And somebody had to enforce that in terms of the exchange, right, in terms of goods, because barter, again, what you need is a unit of measure as well. How are you accounting for that? And then it's got to be with reference to a, a, a base unit. But let's call it grain because it's important, okay? So, but then that had to be kept track of and enforced by a government. Now, a ledger can be kept separately. The only issue is the underlying token you use to exchange. So without a government, if, if you say, oh, okay, I offered you a service and you agreed, and the ledger says you owe me that much, how do I enforce that? Unless I've taken from you something like a token, which somebody will take from me, and I don't have an issue. So, so we still need money. Credit is one aspect. And actual money, a way of giving some, some, something to somebody who will take it and then use it in exchange, is another function that's required. It, it's, it gets pretty complicated when you ask the question, what's, what's the perfect money? What, what's a good form of money that I can use? Essentially, your IOU slips, right? That's what the US yeah. dollar is. That's what any fiat currency is. It's an IOU from the government. But it's accept it comes back to consensus. Because if everybody agrees, they'll the take it. it works. <laughs> but, that's, but that's the allure of gold. The reality is if you grabbed gold, you were pretty confident if you went halfway across the world to the other side of the world, they would want it. They would, they would take it. And, and we know sort of historically what happened when a huge amount of gold came from South America to Spain because there was so much more of it and huge inflation was created. They thought they were rich. <laughs> in reality, that just wasn't capacity at the time. So that was one of these cases where gold supply in a particular part of the world jumped massively in one go. But we go back to the same point. The point is it was acceptable and that consensus wasn't going to go away. Whereas US dollar bill or, or maybe even Bitcoin Depends. Will people still agree they want it? That's the real, real concern. But it's easier to actually send these Bitcoins. It's easier to prove this is a real Bitcoin. It's easier to show that there's, you know, prove there's limited supply. And so it has much, at least in a, you could mathematically and cryptographically prove all these things. But again, it goes back to the point that people need to, but agree on it. Well, if we're talking about Bitcoin, as I guess that's this is a really big point here. Is we're talking about money now. We're talking about Bitcoin. My argument for Bitcoin as money is it's an option because when the central bankers realize it's money, they currently don't think it's money, and I think they don't think it's money because they feel only central bankers can issue money. Yeah. So so they feel that they're sitting on uh, this pedestal of not being not identifying as that, but it's it's money. I mean, the conversation we went back to before store of wealth or store of value, sorry, medium of exchange and a unit of account. It satisfies all those terms. Why does it not make a good money, though? It's what we talked about earlier. If, yeah. if you don't have the ability to control supply and you don't have the ability to lend money into existence, how do I, how do I create mortgages? Because people can't buy homes with loans from Bitcoin. I mean, this is, these are things that monetary tools do work for. And this is why I feel the future of money is going to be using distributed ledger technology. Mm. But it will take the cyber, uh, whatever it is, cryptocurrency, and take it to be able to use digital monetary tools on a distributed ledger-based currency. And the other question really is, what's wrong with leveraging? Creating multiples or something it's, it's, from it's nothing. Not I mean, there's nothing wrong with leveraging. It's just that, you know, humans suck. And we make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> we also, greedy, do, we right? also do make a lot of great decisions. If you look at the wealth and the way the world has grown in the last yeah, but 50 how many years people, compared how, to... Well, look at, like, the distribution of wealth. Like, 
what was the stat? I think I've the, the, got a feeling. So, that sorry, I, I so no, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm argue with you on that, Nick. Sorry, it's a tough. The the world that you are familiar with, yes, go to certain parts of the world, and you'll be shocked. In this day and age, there's billions of people that don't have water, don't have food, don't have roof. It's shocking. The world is not a better place than it was 100 years ago. I would even argue 50 years ago. So I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not arguing the fact that there's people that are in poverty and people that are rich. 100 years ago, there were lots of people in poverty and there were lots of people who were rich. I just feel like there was a lot less rich people back then. Whereas there's a lot more rich people now. So the question really is... That it's, it's all relative, like it's a percentage. I, think, I don't think the population has just massively ballooned horrendously that no, much. No, I would argue. I would say you probably had a lot better wealth distribution 100 years ago than you have today. I have a it's feeling, very concentrated. I have a feeling like there was a guy in a castle who had all the money and everybody else didn't. <laughs> let's, let's, let's assume both overall level of wealth, and that comes down to assets, food production, etc. Let's put, put money aside for now. It's actually an invention for us to do other things. If you could get everything you needed or wanted without money, you wouldn't need money. Of course, you can't. It's a way of exchange. So let's park it aside now. Let's assume that both distribution and overall level of wealth matter. And let's just for argument's sake say sometimes policies that promote overall growth and wealth might not work so well for distribution and vice versa. If you kind of try to be more even with distribution, you put a limit on growth. I don't think we're going to settle that one here today. But let's go back again. And again, you mentioned the three uses of money, but let's say this. Most of the value and the wealth in the world is essentially in real assets, in production, in productive capacity, in people's skills and labor and so on. Money is supposed to be the way in which we facilitate an exchange in a particular way. In the old days, there were various ways of doing it. Or if you were a tribe, it was a system of favors and, and you know, some people could freeload. It doesn't matter. Now, the reality is most of the value of the assets in the world might be measured in monetary terms, but it's actual physical assets. And we're going to come back to how important that is. And you, Sadiq, of all people, you're, you're pretty clear on that. Now, the issue is when you have money, it comes back down. When it comes to distribution, that is the point. It's not how much or how little of, of a certain currency there is. Let's say overnight, all our money was digital. We had round the table whatever it is, five of us, 20% of the world's money each. And then we just decided to change the denomination. So we just added five zeros on the side. None of us owns more or less of the wealth of the world or money of the world. The issue is when the central bank doubles the amount of money supply, but doesn't distribute it evenly to the people yeah. around the stable. So it's always about distribution. Mm. If you talk about aggregate wealth generation, Definitely having enough money going to the right places to circulate through the system and incentivize people to go and produce or save it or, you know, invent the next net to get more fish out of the sea, whatever the, the, the cycle is, is helpful. So that's in terms of that function. But when it comes to when I'm trying to maintain the right level of money supply, where do I deploy it? That is where all the argument is really about. I think that that's the major issue. The way it's currently done, it's through the financial banking system, which is not fair to the rest of the population. And arguably, the arguably the, the real argument is in terms of the interests between borrowers and savers. Mm. Those who already have wealth do not want, their wealth is typically financial assets, right? Yep. Essentially, you know, we've invented all these things. Um, so, so 
typically they would have these assets and they're somebody else's liability, okay? And they do not want, let's say, oh, we've overblent. Fine, let's let some of these of, of our assets fail by canceling some people's liabilities, okay? No, that's what happened. We bailed out the banking system. What that ended up favoring is people who had their assets, they got preserved, okay? People who are pro-inflation would typically be saying, well, it makes it easier for me to pay my debt back. And, and people who are lending, the, typically, people who've got savings are older and people who haven't are younger. So the real argument in terms of whether we should have an expanding money supply to make it easier for the new generation to pay versus having a shrinking or stable one is really almost going back into this discussion about distribution, as you mentioned. Mm. And, it's, it's, and that comes back to the answer of what's the right way of yes, doing Yes, but in the current system, that wouldn't necessarily work, right? So if you go back even 30, 40, 50 years ago, there was a fine distribution between capital and labor, right? That, that equation has shifted tremendously in the favor of capital owners. Laborers have suffered, right? So average person, to your point, right, where there's a real value of their work and so forth, hasn't gone anywhere over the last 30, 40 years. You know, wage inflation has been non-existent, whereas everything else has been inflated, yeah. right? So people that have capital have benefited tremendously. And to your point, being bailed out time and time after again, people that have capital have benefited tremendously at the expense of labor. And the liability they're holding is those laborers. The retail, the average person has been screwed in the process because their entire existence is dependent on consumption and leverage consumption. That's how they survive, right? And the people that are providing that capital continue to grow their wealth. This takes us back. I mean, both your guys' points could take us in a good direction here. We're talking about what has been happening, but what do we think is going to happen and what should, I mean, normally speaking, happen next time this, this goes? You have very strong opinions, Sadiq, on this. You made a very good point before that about what happened the last time. So we had a paradigm shift the last crisis. We essentially had central bank liquidity funding assets in the United States and globally to some degree. And what happened is we had one of the biggest wealth transfers ever from middle class and the poor to the rich. We now have assets in the form of real estate and equity prices that are astronomical and bond prices as well. Whereas the little guy, as you said, the wages have not gone up. So what happens in my opinion in the next three to six months when we get a, I think we're in a recession already, but that's a <laughs> bigger topic. When we actually get a technical recession, the US comes to the table and they say, Quantitative easing. What happens? This is a big question. Do we get a paradigm shift that, uh, did the people push back? This is my question. Do we have people come to the table and say, no, you, you well, gave them money what's to happening the in banks Hong Kong. last time. What's happening right? in Hong Kong? Yeah. At some point, a person can only take it so much, right? It will blow up. Is that going to happen in the next six months? Is that going to happen in the next six years? I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. Let's do a little bit of history because I'm... Old enough to remember the inflation the way you guys wouldn't, also coming from emerging markets. What had happened in the run-up to the, if you like, the revolution of capital in the 70s was that you're getting to full employment. Any increases in prices you did as a, as a capitalist went straight through to wages. 7% inflation, you're getting 5% return on capital. So basically, you had no incentive to invest. You might as well take your money and burn it. And that's why we ended up in the shift that you've described. And then things started reversing all the way through. Stagnant wages in real terms, and the returns go to capital. And the, the software for running the economic system changed back then. So before the 70s, nobody knew who the central banker was. Okay, 
currencies were fixed and it was all about the economic policy and labor was getting a, a, a growing share of incremental income. And what was the important? Full employment. Post-war, full employment, that was the target. Late 70s onwards, price stability, control inflation. So the kind of it shifted because it was a revolt by capital because there was no incentive to invest. We've kind of almost hit bottom on the other side. So what happened then, as, as you mentioned, real wages stagnant, returns are going to capital, everybody knows who the central banker is, and the politicians kind of don't talk about full employment, and they kind of, no, there is a bit more of a trend now, say in the US and elsewhere, AOC, Bernie, they're talking about what do we do to it, but that was not a discussion anyone had. To add to all of this, there was a kind of an adjustment for that flat real wage increase in terms of easier borrowing. So people were, didn't feel the inequality because they had all the goods. They got the cheaper flat screen TVs imported from Asia and everything else. When the financial crisis hit, they had to pay for all of that. So that's when the music stopped. So now you feel that your wages haven't gone up. You can no longer borrow to cover the gap. But what was the policy solution? As you said, it's actually let's bail out capital and let's continue. And that's why we're at a moment where, okay, so what happens next now? But back then, that was an issue. I mean, it was an issue. There was no incentive to invest. So sometimes the, the balance swings too far one way or the other. No, I agree. And uh, at the risk of sounding a socialist or... Uh, I like uh, your red shirt. Today. <laughs> 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 that wasn't planned. I think measuring the incentive and that equation needs to change a little bit as well, too. I'm a big preacher of, you know, fairer things, modesty, right? Because greed is a big part of the problem here, right? You know... I don't know how to articulate this, but we, we live in an era where these capital or these equity markets and so forth, they're very short-sighted, right? It's all about returns today, you know, not looking long-term what the impact of their decisions are. Every executive you talk to is thinking about the next quarter. And I think that, that shift around post-World War, when that started happening, equity markets, it all started making, how do I make more money from this? You squeeze the labor, et cetera, and so forth. And I think if that mentality changes, where the measuring stick is a little different. I think a lot of these things can also be solved in that manner, right? Because the, I think the measuring stick is not appropriate either. We can't look at from, we're not doing apples to apples comparison to a certain extent. I think to change the measuring stick though, we need, when I said before, we had a, a paradigm shift after 08, which was the Sanker Bank liquidity funding asset prices. We I think are going to come to another paradigm shift very quickly here. We, we have negative interest rates, but whether you know it or not, the, the interest rates in America are negative too for foreign buyers. Nobody looks at this and everyone says that America's interest rates are not negative, but I think it was October of 2018, the swap pricing to actually hedge your investment as a foreign investor in American bonds got so expensive that it made it prohibitively expensive for European Japanese investors to invest in US T-bills. So this means for them, it's actually more profitable for them to buy a bonds in their markets that are negative than to buy U.S. bonds with the after hedging pricing. So negative interest rates do not work. There, it's, this is a policy decision that's never been tested before. If you plug negative interest rates in the Black-Scholl method, you get put in option prices that are infinity. It, it, it doesn't make sense for any of our models. So I think what I'm getting at here is you're giving normative answers, but what should happen. To see that happen, we need an event that I think is coming very quickly. And I think the Fed is going to deal with it the same way they always have. And they're going to say QE. What do you guys, let's not put a six months or six year timeline on it, but when this happens, because it will happen, 
what is the public's reaction? Last time they cried for the money to go to Main Street, they lost. Fed basically said, we know better. We know where to put it. What happens when they say that this time? That's my question. Infrastructure. The cynic in me would be, you know, if you can't beat it, join it, right? Borrow like crazy and use leverage like crazy and, and, and do the same thing. But that's the wrong thing to that's do. That's the problem. When you have no inflation, that's the wrong borrowing thing. doesn't help you. You actually have a high... So in a world of declining prices, forget the negative interest rates and how they would work or not. If you've borrowed 100 and you're paying back 100, okay, what happens is then if, if it, prices are declining, you're paying back significantly more. In the old days, when you borrowed 100 and paid back 107, actually your purchasing power of the 107 was lower than 107. So the problem is, it seems attractive, but realistically in a declining price situation, it's really harder to borrow now at 1% than it used to be to borrow when interest rates in the US were at 10%, 12%, but inflation was running close to that. So it's really, it, it can get quite confusing, but it, it just, it's not always what it seems in that regard. And I think says, the other point to, to highlight, what would they be hoping to achieve with QE? As I understand it, eventually, to put some inflation in the system, right? To get the yeah. economy moving again. And that's where I sometimes get confused because, again, we talked about modern monetary theory and what people mm -hmm. are saying. So one of the arguments I've heard is that better than putting all that money into the bank, taking away the assets that nobody wanted to buy because they were creating, there was a run on the shadow banking system and on the banks because they were holding all the wrong assets. Banks started panicking, so the government said, okay, we will do what the Bank of England was created to do for the UK banks back then. We'll take all these assets off you, we'll give you cash reserves. The idea was, which is what, again, what we'd want to do with you, is push that out for people to borrow and spend and stimulate the economy. An argument was, well, why not just take some of the money you give to the banks to go out and lend and actually push it directly to people to go out and spend? There are all sorts of potential risks to that. That might have more of an effect. This and is what I was getting at, is do, do the people, those Main Street, as we'll call it in the United States, do they push for the money instead of going into treasury purchases, do they push for that money to come back to the bottom rather than the top in whatever form? Is it some form of MNT where you basic living wage, maybe it's uh, forgiving student loans, maybe it's tax breaks, I don't know. But do we get fiscal policy instead of monetary policy in the sense of public works, infrastructure, does it look different than last time? And I think it will. I think there's no way, if the Fed goes out there and announces QE, I think Congress is going to be pushed by the people to fight back and say there's no way this time. That's my belief. I think it's fair to say that fiscal policy has been lagging monetary policy in a big way, right? And I think they got that wrong, you know, in a crisis that they just put the foot down on the monetary policy and totally ignore the fiscal policy. Right, and that's, that's, that's not, the, that's not the fault of the, the central banks did what they could. The, real, the reality is that the political systems that are meant to be able to do fiscal policy have been completely sclerotic. Nothing's happened. They're abrogating responsibility because for 40 years they thought all we have to do is, I don't know, talk about Price the new way or whatever and let the central bankers run the economy. The challenge with that is they haven't been, the fiscal policy been, hasn't been able to catch up because they're already running massive deficits. And they can't continue to add. Or problem is, they have a huge fiscal problem. The tax side will tell not? you why not. You can't tax people when they're already in the position they are in the you United States. You don't have States. to tax them. I agree. I agree. That's on the, the other side, the public works and spending side, we could definitely see, and I think we will. That's what I'm getting at. But to your point about inflation, do you think can one argue that all these tariffs and this trade war 
is designed to lead more inflation because obviously it's going to make things more expensive. Who knows? Maybe. But the point is they'd like to see some inflation, which ultimately, I guess, are coming through some more spending, some of that capacity that's sitting idle, they want it utilized because then there's something to tax. That's so, the whole point. So I'll, I'll, I'll post a question because I struggle with this, right? Where the way the central banks monitor inflation, it hasn't been going anywhere. When you talk to people on the street, it's a whole different story. We feel it over here as well, too. Yeah, things have gotten a little better for us because of the housing crisis. Things have come down, become cheaper. But everything else, it just feels like money goes a lot lesser than what it used to. So maybe it's not on the Wall Street, stick. but yeah. on the real street, there is massive inflation. Well, people feel less wealthy in a sense. Whatever they have access to doesn't go as far. It comes back through the standard of living rather than necessarily pricing. That's the whole point. Let's, let's jump 15 years from now. Yeah. <laughs> let's get a little bit geeky and techy again. 15 minutes would be uh, great. Let's bring right? some cryptocurrency <laughs> talk. Wait, before, before we get into that, Matt, you talked about technical recession. Can you dig into that a bit more? Technical recession in the sense of actually having multiple, I believe it's, is it two back-to-back -back quarters, quarters of, of negative growth? So whereas I think if you look at the data coming out of the Eurozone, they've had seven retractions over the last, I think, reporting periods. Um, coppers. Yeah, Germany's having huge issues. So. Already technical recession. Germany is. You already have a earnings recession in parts coppers of the US. Coppers off 18%. Gold's going up, which is a sign in the other direction. Profits out of the States have been, or corporate profits have been revised down from 7% to 2%. I mean, everywhere so you look. Corporate America is in earnings recession, right? Especially with the stronger dollar, they're taking a hit. Right, so earnings are going to, I think, even year on year, quarter over quarter, it's negative earnings, uh, especially for the big tech companies as well. This is, I mean, I know we want to get on to the 15-year question for now, but I think the stuff around inflation and where are we going and what's going to be the reserve currency of choice is, these are big, big questions and we might not answer them today, but I think the US dollar in my mind has to come down in price. It is overpriced. We, it might go up in price in the short term because we'll have a liquidity crisis because of what I just said earlier that we're actually, it's more expensive for foreign capital to buy US bonds than it is to buy negative bonds right now. They're better off buying those. That's a, that has huge implications that are probably beyond this podcast to talk about. But Or, or buying up emerging markets, entire kind of you know, investing in infrastructure, belt and road. I mean, people saying, will it have a positive or negative return? Well, the alternative is to continue sitting on, on billions in US government liabilities, which would not allow you to buy tech or buy a, a factory in the US or invest it there. So I would be wanting to buy big chunks of Africa and building Belt and so Road and doing something in, else. in Africa is the, the smartest move in the past decade. We do not provide financial <laughs> investment advice on I'm this not podcast. Sure, <laughs> I, I'm not sure you'll be able to buy the kind of assets that they'll go and buy, but I'm, I'm looking at it purely from the perspective of countries, governments, say China, has over time surplus to the US, built all these reserves. And now that, for, for a government like that, that's just paper. And that's better utilized. And hence, when people question the return to capital or return on, on capital for, for some of the initiatives that the Chinese are doing, at least these are real assets. Uh, that's an interesting point because their alternative is not phenomenal. I would echo that. So not want to sound preachy over here, but... <laughs> Just, just from, from practicality perspective, right? Because there's a lot of unknowns. We can't predict what's going to happen. It's just how do you navigate through this? How do you protect yourself? So to Amin's point, you want to buy stuff of real value, right? So hard assets. If you don't have gold in your portfolio, you should definitely have gold in your portfolio. 
I would also make argument for real estate, but quality real estate in quality cities where there's population, there's demand, where people want to gravitate to, where we see future growth in those demographics is a big part of that, the type of demographics and so forth. So you want to be owning these hard assets and own some equities, but good quality companies that have earnings potential globally. They're not concentrated in one particular area, et cetera, and so forth. So that's how you can navigate through these because no one can predict what's going to happen in 15 years from now. So that's how you manage yourself. Yeah. I, I want to set the stage now. 15 years from now, it's going to look like the following. All right. There's no paper money. So it's gone digital. Everybody's got a mobile phone. Everybody's got a tap device. There's no need for physical money anymore. It's not a means of accepting an exchange anymore. It's gone. You have loads of alternative currencies. You have central bank, country-level fiat-issued currencies. And then you have Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, et cetera. Bitcoin is at 100K. I'm sure everybody's thinking it's going to be like at millions of dollars, but let's say it's at 100,000, equivalent of the digital US dollar by that point. You have Libra, which is valued at half a trillion dollars, okay? Based off whatever asset God There's knows. Inflation, I mean. <laughs> right. So you've gone, you've gone from a $1 billion asset right now to $500 billion in 15 years. Digital money, no paper. What's it going to look like? How, how, how are the central banks working? Are, are, have, we, have we lost the banking system? Because actually everybody's holding their own assets. They're, they're the custodian of their own value. And they can decide to do whatever they want with it. We can see the value of exchange will be easy. You just walk up to someone, tap their phone, tap a merchant, et cetera. It's easy to move. It's probably going to be a lot easier to build exchange systems because everything's digital anyway. So the, the, media, the way to exchange is digital and no longer physical. So there's no movement of cash moving around the globe. I think you had to separate private banks from central banks in that okay. question. I, uh, there's, a, there's an argument to be had that there isn't private banks if you can hold a wallet and control your yeah. money in that sense. What does a bank do? In that case, what are they? What, the is, what is there bank a bank do? Is no, no, central be... bank exists, so that's still in power. Mm -hmm. But what is a bank, or does it still exist? Well, I just argued it doesn't have to in that scenario. I mean, doesn't have to. We could have monetary policy with a digital currency that looks different without the need to to pass money down to private banks. I mean, the narrow banking idea that we talked about before. Instead of giving my money to a private bank at a low risk scenario and them going and doing whatever they want with it and gambling. I can just give my money to the central bank to hold and get that return. So that's one vision of this. I do think we will always need some form of central bank to deal with contraction and the supply of money to be able to increase the, the economic lending for people when they need it and to decrease things if they get away with inflationary scenarios. So that's the thing. You have, you have a central bank issuing, which is technically just a digital fiat, and they're controlling it, they're manipulating it for the use of the economy and, and how they want to be seen on the global stage. And then you have currencies that have come from no government level entity what, what's going on there let's say if facebook libra is valued at half a trillion dollars right so that's a, that's a large amount of money floating around the market controlled by a consortium of groups not controlled by the government so its impact on the economy is not driven by monetary policy it might be affected by monetary policy but it's not driven by it Following up from what you just said, related, it's not going to address it directly, but I, I, in answer to your questions, three, three things. I don't think there'll be a single global currency, and possibly even there might be an alternative to a global reserve currency. I don't know exactly, but within 15 years, I find it hard to believe all governments in the world can agree on a single one. Yeah. Or they might be able to, I, it's a tougher question. I think you're not going to have 
20 forms of money or 800 forms of money because it just gets harder and harder. In the old days, the more there were separate economic islands, the more people invented different forms. Just in this day and age, have 20 or 30, maybe three or four, but I, I think there's a limit to how many you can have because it just becomes impractical. It's like all these utility tokens that were going around everywhere. Well, yeah, there is something you can use to buy all these things like utilities. It's called cash. I don't have to have 1,800 different wallets. Every time I want to buy a piece of cheesecake, I have a token for that. And for a car, I have a token. That never made sense. So that's a lesson. The one thing I see, though, is with digital technology, the, what's really under threat is emerging market central banks. I think that potentially they, that's a big concern. They, they could, some of them wipe themselves out regularly. And then you get dollarization. But that was in the days where it was a country with a tourist economy or people got so tips and so on. People exchanged dollars, controlled exchange rates in the Old Eastern Europe, and people were always passing dollars under the table. When it gets that much easier to do it digitally, and that's a way of doing it, I think potentially you're, you're putting a, like a blowing up central banks in, in countries who can't, you know, they attempt to do, for example, what Libra's doing, you know, having some reserves and being fractional reserve on top of that with a domestic currency, and they don't even have the same firepower. So, so I, you know, if I were in an emerging market and I could get my Facebook wallet and kind of, you know, on the quiet, send money to other people and not have it discovered. The one thing is I really don't know where emerging market central banks are going to be in 15 years. It, and, it, and I don't know what the results of that would be. Because, I mean, that's potentially hugely disruptive and not always in a positive would way. Would that involve the governments like China and the U.S. basically running the economies? So essentially, the, they end up falling under, under their sphere of influence one way or the other. But in the old days, you had a central bank in between trying to maintain a peg or failing, and then you just give up. So at some point, and I, somebody correct me on this, in Zimbabwe, when the currency was going so badly, they stopped using it. And people were using rand and sterling and other things they can get their hands on. And it's like saying, well, you know what? I am a country and a government and so on. But when it comes to currency, I don't issue my own. I use a bit of maybe yuan or maybe libra. I, I don't know. I mean, but I, what actually happens in emerging markets that can no longer sustain a central bank, I don't know. And that's one of the most interesting. And that's, one of the, that's within 15 years. So I definitely see the sort of we'd have multiple sort of we'd have many different forms or many different types of money, right? So whereby these superpowers would have enough firepower to actually, you know, say, okay, it's just better to use our currency, right, in your economy. But to go back to what you also mentioned about everything being digital, what if it becomes so digital that the market decides, you know, what people can, what people could use to spend? So if it becomes so digital and everyone becomes digitally native, then they could say we could use this form of cryptocurrency or that form yeah, you have the choice. So the they issue have a is, choice, right? so you have the manipulative governments going to be out option. there like the US and China who are going to try and own every single parcel of But land. the thing is you can't, so the, the good thing about crypto is that it's, it's always going to be an option. It's always going to be there on the sidelines, right? You only need a huge network effect before these big economies actually feel under threat. So once we, I, I would argue you, that differently. I think I think the biggest risk that Bitcoin. No, I'm gonna talk about all cryptocurrency. I think they matter much less. But I think the biggest risk Bitcoin faces is is right now. It's the next year and a half. If governments wake up to what it means that it actually is money, and they try to stop, I think they still can by blocking on and off channels. They could block it right away and say this is a risk to our sovereignty and our ability to print our own money. We're stopping this. They could probably do it today without too much pushback. 
and no, they, maybe they couldn't kill Bitcoin. People could still move Bitcoin around, but it'd be a dollar. So who cares? The more funds, high net worth, and the people in general acquire this, keep this, invest in this, build tools around building debt instruments around this and derivatives, this, this is when it's going to be hard to stop. So I think Bitcoin has a, a two-year kind of window here where hopefully, in my mind, hopefully because I'm an investor, yeah. gets, gets through. Otherwise, I mean, I, I have a hard time seeing even, even Libra. Yeah. I don't know why even us as people would want private company mm-hmm. issuing currency for their own profit line or data rather than governments that should be doing it for the people, by the people. Whether they do that or not is another I mean, question. I'd rather trust the government more than, than Facebook. Agreed. Honestly? <laughs> really? Yes. That's not actually... I, 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 I don't think so. I prefer... Yeah. Yes, I, I, it's 50-50 when I ask people. Actually, they, they, they might prefer to trust Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg. I, I, I would still say governments, but you know... Half the people I know, and they'll give There's you good some level of well. accountability at the government level, yeah. right? There won't be any accountability at the private level. I think at this stage where you're talking millennials and so forth, yeah, there's lots of surveys out there that they, they trust Apple and Facebook more than they trust their own government officials. But I think that won't last very long. There's no accountability there. But I just want to pose a question here because this is where my understanding is a little limited. The whole purpose of why Bitcoin distributed were created and you sort of touched that on that, where we've gone away from the, the underlying premise by creating all these intermediaries and all these products that are coming off of it, like derivatives and so forth. Will we just create the same mess 50 years, 100 years down the line with cryptocurrencies by doing all these exotic instruments on top of it? Semantic, I don't want to say cryptocurrencies. But I think when I define crypto, it's the sense of avoiding government's monetary policy by its definition. Okay. Digitally digital currencies based on a distributed ledger of course you can program these any way you want to i think they have the potential to be more transparent and as you said we could have more feedback from if if we have governments running it then there should be some kind of transparency and voting mechanism to how that policy looks like but is a potential for governments to be as bad or worse than facebook of course think about the idea of china and what i said in europe about europe making people digitize their money so they cannot have the ability to pull it out of the bank and pay them their negative interest rates and basically forcing people to not save. How, how terrible is that, that the European government is making interest rates so low that they're telling people not to save even when they're going into a recession? Spend all your money. What, what do they do when they don't have this mattress money, as you referred to it before? And this is being incentivized by the governments. It's criminal. So I guess we, we mean the same thing. Uh, we just use different terminology. So when I say crypto, I also think of Digital currencies where you could program all these different things. Going back to your point, going back to the decentralized finance space, that's all happening. Like people are creating these forms of instruments in a decentralized way. Still an experiment, but people are also like finance. They're a centralized company and they have just introduced a lending platform. They've now introduced a futures platform and they're literally recreating what we see in banking today, but just for the crypto and digital currency world issue here is that that's not transparent it's not regulated and i'm more a bit worried about that but when it's really put on the blockchain and decentralized it's you know you could see everything two two points there i mean we got at the end of the day for anything to succeed even the us dollar and any of the kinds of things we're talking about it's about adoption so it's can either be forced or people can voluntarily do it or be barred from doing something that's positive for them so, so that's probably the way from which we look at it and analyze it. Would it be attractive? Would people want to? Who can stop them? And can it be forced on them to use? And that's the history of what people have used for money. So I, I think that's always a good starting point for the analysis. 
The second one is thinking about what might be attractive. I can imagine in the old days, the world was a big place and every local community invented some form of money in the form of trust or credit that might not even have to have been tokened. And on the one hand, we keep talking about globally somebody sitting in one part of the world writing a piece of software to sell to somebody else and then they trustlessly you know, exchange Bitcoin. I think there is, has been a move for more activities to happen at the level of local communities. We've seen tokens, form of local money, what was it, somewhere in the UK, something pound. So local communities end up actually providing services for each other. And in a sense, the more that happens, the more there is a sense of local exchange that could work more effectively without even having a huge amount of technology because you do know the people as well. So I, I think that's one potential aspect of how things might, might evolve. 15 years, I don't know. Again, 15 years is a long... Right, well, well, it's based in technological world. Yeah. You haven't talked about autonomous agents, robots, and things who will have, all have their own wallets and crypto. We have no idea what's going to happen when that we happens. We actually... <laughs> At Loyal, we talk about this a lot. It's the idea of building, we build a product suite for incentive management. So the idea is beyond just incentivizing human agents, but when your coffee machine converts coffee, how do you incentivize it on what brand of coffee? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's, no, no, people are building this, this as real. we speak. Yeah, like, I, I know projects that are literally doing this. It's amazing. Let me ask a question about that. I mean, obviously there is technological aspects to that and it's programmatic and it's a distributed rather than a centralized program and sometimes the impact and effects of that could be hard to predict but at the end of the day i'm not entirely sure how massively different it is for an autonomous agent versus decisions made by a company that used to own say it's the cars or the coffee machines in the old days it wasn't autonomously decided through a program it was central computer and somebody would make a decision how i mean other than the the aggregate, the, the emergent behavior of all these independent agents interacting with each other, which can be unpredictable. I don't know how massively different it is from what we have now. Somebody's going to program them, but just the impact of what they're doing. I think it's the complexity of swarm. And for this one really easy way to talk about it is in a swarm system, let's think about if we had drones flying all over Dubai for transport for, uh, for Souk or Amazon, I guess it is now. How do you decide who takes which cube of airspace? in real time when all these mortars move. You can't have a centralized authority doing that. They have to decide by consensus on a distributed network to be able to do that. So this is an idea of how things leverage. And it's check. the unpredictability of that. So on the one hand, when that works, it works very effectively. On the other hand, when it goes wrong, you can have this kind of exponential spike into something really terrible happening and they all crash in the same spot or something like this that. Is, this is hard to predict. Okay, but, hang on. But, 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 but that, in theory, that would only work when 100% it's autonomous. Because the moment you put a yep, humor absolutely. intervention in there, you're bound to have catastrophes. Too dumb for that somewhere in the U.S. <laughs> no, a guy, somewhere in the U.S. There's some guy that hits a button and the printing press starts. You replace that guy with a machine who goes, let's print a couple more bills. And then print another couple more bills. And then print another couple more bills. And that's all tied into the financial system, monitoring all the key metrics. And then it monitors the Forex and it monitors everything else. Suddenly it just starts trying to print, remove, print, remove. But on micro fractions across the market that that seems quite complex and could be quite dangerous because it's unpredictable then, yeah that's really the and so you, you're waking up every day and you might have taken a, a billion dollars out of the market or you might put 10 billion dollars back into the market which technically would be a lot more harder to do today because they're not they're also printing physical money and they're also doing transfers through archaic systems which takes time to propagate right i don't know how long it takes for 
You were spanked $50 billion. Keystrokes. Keystrokes, but they're buying (laughs) bills and those bills then get bought up by other people and those other people then buy up that. And we know how the SWIFT mechanism works and how the movement of money works. That's that takes days and even weeks, maybe all that money to filter eventually to the person who ends up holding the asset. But in the digital world, that's a split of a second, right? Those assets are bought and then suddenly they're just distributed instantaneously. Yeah, the difference between digital messaging and digital assets moving. Yeah. We've seen that in markets. When yeah. people stood there shouting at each other to buy and sell shares, once it became automated, now we're talking about high frequency trading. And we know it can have a destabilizing effect, but most of the time you're not going to notice it's there. It's only that fat tail or the extreme event that will hit you, and then you're not, you're not going to know what happened. But with humans, you, you say the guaranteed to it's going to take a, a much longer time for them to, to make that disaster, and others might intervene to stop them. This just happens in an instant. So if you're going the wrong way, you're going to get there much faster if, you, if you're doing it in an automated <laughs> way. That the disaster will just hit you before you realize you're getting there. Well, I think we might have just got to the end of the podcast. It's a, a bit of a scary note to end yeah, on. I know. I think so <laughs> you should try no, to make sorry. it more positive, I think. <laughs> okay, so let's, everybody has to say at least a positive thing. So it's 15 years ahead. What does the utopia look like? Are we in MNT? Everybody has income. Everybody owns and can do whatever they want with their assets. I'm sitting in Barbados, <laughs> owning digital land on Decentraland, buying digital coffee in that land that I own digitally, and then getting coffee sent straight away from the tokens that I've mm. basically opted in for using that app. I'm sit- I'm but, sitting- in, but in reality, Ahmed is still sitting in Dubai. He's dreaming all this through his virtual <laughs> world where he's wearing a VR and imagining yeah. all of this. Well, actually, I probably just sold my, 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 my last Bitcoin for $50 million and I've just retired. You just sold it to me. And that, <laughs> and that $50 million just gets you a piece of egg as of inflation. Hey, look, if we're going to give a positive thing, I think, I don't know who said this quote, but I heard it before. Don't ask for comfort, ask for excitement or something like that. At least we're going to have an exciting 15 years. It may not, <laughs> it may not be easy to predict, but exciting. it's going to be exciting. Like, probably well, going to be another war. Humans, humans <laughs> are based on challenge, right? So I guess we're all going to be challenged in the next 15 we'll years. We'll all be challenged. Plenty of excitement. I can agree with that. The only other thing I can draw from that is the world's been around situations like that before. Every time so far we've made it, I, I'm not giving any guarantees that we will this time. But the fact is, it'll look, the, the, you know, the, when you ask the question about where we will be in 15 years, I think there will probably be two or three things we completely didn't think of right now. We'll totally blindside us. We'll have some positive, some negative. We'll, this extreme instability will settle into something more stable. That's mm. how it always happens. But I think the real issue is that we really can't define what it looks like. So there's no point trying to be optimistic or pessimistic about it. I think what we had as a stable time before the current crisis, we thought was quite nice. I think if you brought people from 50 years earlier or 100 years earlier, they would have found some of it very disturbing. We just grew up with it and got used to it. So we might find whatever comes down the line very difficult, but I trust and believe that the kind of the younger generation will get adapted to it slightly more slowly. Problem is change happens too fast, possibly for humans to completely cope with. Mm-hmm. But I think it's not, it's something that might completely blindside us, and something we didn't talk about today. Uh, we should just rerun this recording in fifteen years and see where we got to. Yeah. Oh, and encrypted will be like the biggest. We'll be on the five thousand episode of encrypted by then, and we'll still be asking the same <laughs> questions. You think? Where will we be in fifteen years from now? Thank you very much, gentlemen. It was a great podcast. For any of you that are still listening after the one hour and 30 minutes of the podcast, 
please subscribe to us and follow us online and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode thanks a lot gentlemen thanks thank you thank you